Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our Easter series entitled The Resurrection. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Victory Over Death. So many poems and words have been written about death. Dylan Thomas counseled that we should fight death with every step. He wrote, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. See, I've often wondered about that. I've been told by more than one physician and nurse that people of faith often will die more quickly than those who have no faith. I suppose that those who have no faith are fighting death with all they have, raging against the dying of the light. But of course, they don't win. Whether we rage against the dying of the light or submit ourselves to it, the light dies. It always does. Others, like Mary Elizabeth Fry in her poem, Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep, imagines that after death she will be the the thousands of winds that blow and the diamond glints on the snow. But of course, that's all sentimental nonsense. She will not be felt in every wind. She'll be dead in the ground. Still others look at death for what it truly is a merciless foe who does not listen to the pleas of its victims, but whose mighty scythe sweeps every human being down without even a hint of pity. Death, it haunts the human race. Whether we personalize it as a grim reaper or sentimentalize it as warm beckoning to come and rest, no matter how we deal with it, death marches on. It's both ceaseless and universal. It awaits us all. I have no doubt that many visions of life after death are the product of a terrified mind that seeks solace in the thought that it can in some way escape death. You know, and I, for my part, would be most uncertain about what happens after death were it not for one inescapable fact, and that being the resurrection of the dead. See, it is for that reason that I will take the last of this series and just focus on the evidence for the historical validity of the resurrection. If Jesus truly died after his crucifixion, and if after three days he walked out of the tomb, then everything that we think about death must be altered. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. See, the resurrection of Jesus means that death has been defeated, and that victory over death is offered to all who experience union with Christ. And so today, as we end our study of 1 Corinthians 15, we will study verses 50 to 58. Paul ends his lengthy treatment of the resurrection with three thoughts. First, in verses 50 to 53, he declares a great mystery. And then in verses 50 to 57, he announces a great victory. And then following that announcement in verse 58, he sets before us a great mandate. So let's begin with a great mystery. I'm I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." What Paul describes in this section is what is called a mystery. Please remember that whenever you read the word mystery in the Bible, you shouldn't think of it as something that's hard to understand or something that's being kept a secret. 
A biblical mystery is something that no one knew, nor could they know, until it had been revealed. That is, until Jesus rose from the dead, no one knew exactly what would happen to a person after death. Now, I know that there are those who argue that in the Old Testament, the saints did not believe in life after death. But when one considers the evidence, well, you can see that's not the case. David announced that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Elijah experienced a chariot taking him into heaven. And one of the sons of Korah in Psalm 49 verse 15 wrote, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Indeed, while the afterlife is not a major theme in the Old Testament, the prevalence of confidence in God at the point of death is very real. Job even stated in Job 19 verse 26, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. See, in some fashion, and Job had no idea how, but he believed that in some fashion he would bodily see God in eternity. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul repeats what by now should be obvious to anyone studying this chapter. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He means that this present body is not suited to the kingdom in the age to come. When God makes all things new, the very nature of the life to come precludes our present bodies. They simply cannot exist in the age to come. That's why God has designed a new body for believers in that age. These will be bodies that are not subject to decay, nor to disease, nor to the limitations that are inherent in our present bodily experience. Indeed, the new body of the believer, even while it is in some fashion, you know, it rises out of our present body, kind of, kind of like grain grows out of a seed. This new body is imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body, able to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit without complaint but in joy. But this now is where the mystery comes in. The mystery is related to the second coming of Jesus. The time in which the new bodies are inherited awaits Christ's second coming. The mystery includes the matter that we will not all sleep. Now, as I've stated before, the idea of sleeping does not mean that we lapse into unconsciousness. See, on this present plane of existence, sleep hardly means unconsciousness. You know, one recent scholarly article on sleep said, although sleep appears to be a passive and restful time, it actually involves a highly active and well-scripted interplay of brain circuits resulting in sleep's various stages. And so for those who make soul sleep a doctrine, insisting that at the point of death we become unconscious, well, any normal definition of sleep surely precludes the idea of unconsciousness. And so as I've pointed out in this series on the resurrection, for the believer, we have the assurance that at the moment we depart from this body, we are present with the Lord. But that brings us back to the mystery. It's this. We shall not all sleep. Not every believer in Christ will die. There is one generation that will never taste death. It is the generation that is alive when Christ returns. But the other half of the mystery is this, that both those who have died in Christ and those who are alive at his coming will be changed. So here Paul means the resurrection of the body. That would mean that for those who have died, their decaying body, which has now disintegrated into nothing, it will be transformed. But for those of us who are alive, there seems to be a most remarkable experience. Their living physical bodies will suddenly be transformed. And the reason for this is obvious. Their bodies, which are suited for this age and era, cannot bear the environment of heaven. 
Now to the question, how long does it take for this transition to take place? And the answer is, it's an instantaneous process. See, our translation says it's in the twinkling of an eye. In the Greek, it reads, in an atom. Now, the word is atomos, which for the Greeks was something that was so small that it couldn't be divided any further. So, in other words, a time period so short that if you were to divide it, it could not be divided in half. Now, we have a very similar expression in English. We say, in a split second. And so, the transformation for those who are alive will be so instantaneous that if you filmed the process in slow motion, it would still not appear to be slow. It would still be instantaneous. Now, as we might describe that today, that would be quite a rush. But when exactly does that transition take place? And the answer is that this will take place at the last trumpet. The idea that there is a last trumpet seems to indicate that there are trumpets before that. Now, those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation might think of the seven trumpets of Revelation chapters 8 to 11. Now, clearly, at the writing of 1 Corinthians, Revelation had not yet been written, and Paul does not describe any other trumpets, but whatever other trumpets he has in mind, he believes that the final trumpet that blows signals the coming of Christ in glory. 2 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, I think, describes exactly what Paul's speaking about. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so the last trumpet is the trumpet that signals the appearance of Christ. And with that signal comes also something that is astonishing. In an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, at that very moment, we are transformed. Engaging kids in the Bible is critical from a very early stage. Familiarity with Bible characters, stories, and providing effective tools to encourage memorization. Well, this is the vision for the launch of Back to the Bible Kids. Coming this May, three unique game-style Bible engagement applications designed to expand and deepen a child's understanding and memorization of Scripture will be released on both the Apple and Google Play Store. Exciting times, but can we ask for your prayers? Our vision for Back to the Bible Canada is that we would engage Canadians at every stage and age in life, deepening our thirst to know the Bible. So please pray and stay tuned. And remember, all that is accomplished is in partnership with friends like you. So join us in ensuring that trustworthy Bible teaching continues to be available every day by offering your gracious support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca. The last trumpet signals the appearing of Jesus in the air. In Revelation, he's seated on a white horse and the host of heaven come after. 
At trumpet sounds, the faithful dead rise, and then those who are believers and are alive are instantly transformed while standing on their feet. I mean, what a mystery. As Paul ends his lengthy treatment on the resurrection, he ends proclaiming three things. The first is the revelation of the mystery. The resurrection of the body of believers will not happen gradually. Yes, it may be a two-step process. The first step is the resurrection bodies being granted to all who have died in Christ. And the second step is the instantaneous transformation of all of those who are alive on earth. If you can imagine the scene, Christ returns and his first action is to gather to himself all who belong to him. This he does before he wages war on the rest of mankind. That, says Paul, is the great mystery, and that's now being revealed. Now, having revealed the great mystery, Paul announces a great victory. I'm reading now 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we've just read, in my view, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. See, at times I've heard this passage of Scripture read at funerals, but I must say, it always seems a bit hollow there. I know that it's become quite fashionable in our day to put on a very brave front at funerals, both among Christians and also among non-Christians. You know, whereas in the past, people would hire professional mourners who would come and weep at funerals, so many contemporary funerals today occur in an attitude of mirth, often jokes are told. Now, from my vantage point, I think it's more than acceptable for a genuine believer to weep bitterly at a funeral. But the common response to what I've just said is often met with incredulity. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 teach us that death has lost its sting? Shouldn't we then simply assume a stance in keeping with that word? But I fear, as is often the case, so many times Scripture is read out of context. Notice verse 54 again. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass. Did you hear that? When is it that death loses its sting? The answer is that it loses its sting at the second coming of Christ, and not now. At this moment, death still has a horrible power to sting. Victory still seems, at least at times, elusively beyond our grasp. As I'm recording this today, it's now been eight years when my own father died. He was then 87 years of age, and he was not a young man. He had been diagnosed with leukemia, and I watched as at times he would develop what appeared to be a bruising all over his body. You know, he hadn't bumped himself. The bruising just happened spontaneously. And then came that horrible day when he was taken to the hospital where he would eventually die. He knew it, for he told my mom to try to be strong because he was not coming home again, he said. And in those weeks before his death, a transformation was occurring. You know, my father had lived in the Russian Holocaust. He, He had watched his own father being taken away to death. He was in Germany when the Allied bombs fell and many died. He liked to tell the first time he read a report that smoking was bad for you, and he instantly stopped smoking. He often marveled that people would allow their body to rule their will. You know, he felt a Christian, especially who has the help of the Holy Spirit, should at all times put to death the misdeeds of the body. I guess what I'm saying is that I knew my father as a very strong man. When a younger man, his his upper body, well, it was very powerful. And one more thing. 
I think I loved him as much as a son can love a father. And there he lay, once that very strong man, as as strong a man as I have ever known a man to be. And he had become weak as a man could be, as death was savaging his body. At one point in time, he bid me kneel next to his bed and, and pray earnestly that the time of his suffering would not be long, but that he would die very quickly. And when I first saw him in his coffin, I had to go and be by myself, for the grief and the weeping was more than I could display in public. And truth be told, I felt the sting of death. And eight years later, at least sometimes, I still feel that sting so deeply today. Occasionally, I've even dreamt of him only to awaken and remember, oh yeah, he is gone. And here's what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us. This sting is not forever. When Christ returns in glory, the sting, indeed, the victory of death is no more. Among the saints in heaven, a great roar will arise, and we will shout a great note of triumph. Death, as of right now, has been swallowed up in victory. That's what we'll shout, and that, that future promise is what sustains us here and now. So if you, my dear friend, have have lost a son or a daughter, wife or a husband, or a deeply loved friend, then comfort yourself with these words. When Paul says that the sting of death is sin, well, he means simply that death has been given power over the human race because of sin. And when he says the power of sin is the law, he means what he consistently teaches. The law of God, the standard of God's righteousness, does not end human rebellion. Indeed, God's law only excites our rebellion, and we sin all the more. In Romans 7, Paul would say, O wretched man that I am. But now in Christ, Thanks be to God, for he gives us the victory over sin and therefore, eventually, over death itself. And so in ending this discussion of the resurrection, Paul has first declared the great mystery. The new bodies will be given to the elect at the second coming of Christ. And then when we receive our new bodies, we will experience the greatest of all victories. Death will have been defeated. And then when we come to the last sentence of this amazing chapter, Paul follows all of this up by speaking to believers who are alive today. See, does all of this matter while we're still alive? Well, indeed it does. Paul gives us the great mandate. I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul wants to say to us today, that the greatest incentive we have for being faithful to Christ in the day that we now live is the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. You and I are going to have to work at this. You see, we live in a day in which so many things are given to us instantly. You want to buy a car? Don't have the money? You can buy that car today and pay it off for the next four years. You need to buy a book? Well, get it on Amazon. And if you want it shipped priority post, well, it can be at your door tomorrow. Are you hungry and and need to eat this very moment? Well, you don't even have to wait to sit down. A fast order restaurant can give you food by the time you sit down. Very soon now, technology is going to give us 3D printers that are able to print out instantly anything that we order. But hear me, that's not how faith works. Faith is lived in the future promises of God. Faith requires patience. That's why Paul chooses the words he does. The word steadfast speaks of being resolute and firm and not being moved when we are not instantly rewarded. Indeed, in order to be faithful, you'll have to wait for your reward. The next word that Paul uses is the word immovable. 
Have you ever met people whose opinions of things are, are constantly changing? Well, sure you have. You're not to be that way. If evil has its way, you don't move. If evil is called good and good is called evil in our culture, don't you move. And finally, Paul speaks of abounding in the work of the Lord, overflowing in good works. Nothing is too much for us. And why are we like this? Is it not that our labors are not in vain? You know, for years I had a wonderful opportunity, a marvelous privilege of working with a man, Pastor Carlin Weinhauer. When he was slandered and maligned, he would always say, God knows, and then he would carry on as before. For him, the opinions of others was of little importance, and as I watched him, I decided it should be exactly the same for me. You see, the resurrection of Jesus tells us that faithfulness is never in vain, even if the whole world should reject us. Easter is the declaration to all who believe that nothing, but nothing, but nothing will ever move us from the mark. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, for all of us who have been this earthly motivated, whose eyesight have never been taken off the horizon, who have never looked into the things that are yet to come, we find ourselves wondering why we are so slow to respond. Oh, Lord our God, help us this moment to see what happened at the resurrection of Christ and help us to take our eyes off of the immediate so that we might see him who lives forever and that we might also see the declaration of the great mystery and rejoice in the victory that lies before us. Amen. Something you said or you mentioned that was really revealing to me. You know, we can have, and you didn't use these words, I'm using these words, these celebrations of life when someone passes away now. And you know, that's, that's a terrific thing. I'm not, not being negative about that. But I think sometimes we can let people go away who have been at a funeral, who, who, who are sad in, in their mourning, feel almost guilty for feeling sad. Yeah, and I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Again, I think it's okay for us to remember with joy and even with laughter some of the things that our loved one has done. But I do think there is a time for mourning, and we have taken mourning away from our funerals. We ought to allow ourselves to mourn and see deeply what has occurred. We were not created to die, but yet death has occurred. And so let's come to terms with that. I've also talked to a number of counselors who've told me that there are a great many people who never come to terms with a death because they weren't there to grieve when the person died. So I guess if I'm doing something that it's, it's, the, it's an incredible thing. I, I'm, I'm asking for us to, to consider a time in our funerals or, or whatever we call them uh, to mourn over the death of a loved one. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Partner to Tell monthly partner program continues to hit new heights of involvement from friends from coast to coast. There is not a single province who isn't represented by a committed partner in ministry. The regular gifts of monthly partners have become a stabilizing and foundational force for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. The impact extends to every aspect of ministry, breaking down barriers, financial or otherwise, for making Bible teaching resources available to anyone seeking to know the truth of the gospel 
and desiring to grow deeper in their relationship to the Lord. So if you're a monthly partner and you wonder what impact you're making, let me assure you that you're an integral part of all that is done to lead people closer in their walk with Jesus every day. To find out more about becoming a partner to tell Monthly Partner and join this incredible group of ministry friends, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or sign up online at backtothebible.ca.